morning, church. Oh, man. I don't understand. I feel like I'm up here often enough. I can't even get a good one. Good morning, church. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Justin. Uh, I'm one of the elders here to be sent out as the planting pastor of a new autonomous church plant called New City Fellowship. If you're uh, interested at all in learning about what New City's doing, uh, Crosspoint's relationship to it, maybe uh, you would love to partner by joining, by praying, by financially contributing to the mission that God has for us. I'd love to talk to you more about all of that over at the Connections table after service. I'm standing in for our lead pastor, Pastor Steve McKenzie, who is on the last leg, the uh, tail end of a 12-week sabbatical, and uh, we are excited to have him back home, refreshed, re-energized, healed, and whole for years and years more of ministry activity. Steve will be back on the pulpit July 23rd, so this month, um, and we, uh, yeah, we're just really excited for him to, to come back to us. Go ahead, yeah, yeah. All right, are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Great, me too. Why don't you meet me in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, first Kings chapter 18. And as you get there, I want to sort of frame up our time, provide some context for what we're about to read. We do have a good read ahead of us, but, uh, I want to frame up our time, provide some context. My assignment this morning is to continue on in our series, Peaks and Valleys, a series we started back in April. And the aim of this series is to explore how we can experience the, the true transformation we have in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the highs and lows of life. In other words, how to look at the season you find yourselves in this morning and navigate how God would use this season to conform you into the image of his son. How these seasons, high and low, are actually for your gain, for your good, even if they may not be good to you. And as this series has went on, our time of study and sitting under God's word has taken different shapes, some sermons being more thematic in their nature, while others, like our time this morning, is looking at literal peaks and valleys in the Bible and seeing what happened in those moments and gleaning the wisdom that the Lord would have for us as we apply it into our season today. Our time this morning will be spent observing a very exciting moment on Mount Carmel. Uh, about a century after King David ruled a united Israel, we now find the kingdom divided north and south. Ahab is the king. And I'll just let the Bible tell you about Ahab. First Kings chapter 16, verse 30 reads like this. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So you can understand what I mean when I say that Ahab has turned away from God. 
He has forsaken Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and now he worships Baals. By the influence of his wife, Jezebel, who he shouldn't have married because she was a Baal worshiper, but he went over and did that anyway. Ahab has fully embraced another God. This one, the one that we're going to speak about in this text, is the God of fertility and rain. That's all that Baal means. Baal's a generic term. It just means God. There's many different Baals. If you read the Old Testament, you'll start to see that they talk about many different Baals. The Baal of fire and sun and rain and this, that, and the third. But in this one, we're talking about fertility and rain. So now the people of Israel live in a conflicted way. They live attempting to serve both the God of their ancestors and the God of their king. God responds to Israel's choice with three and a half years of no rain. And therefore, there is no fertility in the land. A famine has undertaken Israel. Jezebel now, she has hunted down and murdered God's prophets, though some of them have taken to the caves to hide. But overall, this is not a good tenure for Israel's king, no. The prophets murdered, the people starving, they're poor, the living conditions are not well. And so in trying times, the people of Israel have begun to flirt with the God of their leader. They have began to live in such a way that was uncommitted totally to the Lord. But the famine now has pushed them into full-blown doubt. A few points here. I know we haven't gotten to the text yet, but I don't mean to be preachy too early. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's not bad practice. Let me be clear with you. It's not bad practice to read yourselves into the character of the Bible. In the just focus of the gospel movements in the early 2000s, we were somehow taught to only read the main narrative of God's word in the Old Testament, but hear me say this, it's okay to read yourselves into David and Moses and Joshua and Elijah or even as Ahab or Jezebel. You will get a good word from God in doing so. However, let me be clear with you, the Bible does have a main idea. There is a central point that God wants to communicate to you and for you to receive, understand, and abide by that central idea, you must read yourself, the individual, as the people of Israel, the community. When you read the Old Testament and you want to understand the main idea, the central idea that God is trying to communicate to you, read yourselves into Israel. So we're going to practice that real quick. As we look at Israel... May we all be very aware of our propensity to not trust God when he has decided to respond to us in a way that we would not rather have not. Israel had already begun to grow comfortable in their prosperous seasons. And what usually happens in the human heart when the right ingredients are laid down, when comfort and complacency sets in, is the idolatry of self rises up like a loaf of bread in the oven. 
we begin to subtly behave and speak in such a way that we believe we are the cause of everything good going on. It's my hustle. It's my drive. It's my determination, my resolve, my work ethic. It's my ability. And what God has done to an Israel who is behaving this way is he has turned his face from them. And a famine has come. So now Israel begins to move further away from God and begins to incline their ears to the prophets of Baal. They stopped talking with God to listen to something else. God tells Elijah in the opening verses of chapter 18, go and talk with Ahab. That didn't go over well the first time around in chapter 16 and 17. But God says, when you talk with him, I'll bring the rain. See, this is one of those moments we could read ourselves into Elijah. When God calls us to obedience and declares promises for us on the other side of it, you can take those promises to the bank. When God says he's going to do something, guess what? He's going to do it. Y'all not with me. I'm going to have to move slower, huh? (laughs) Everything around Elijah is telling Elijah that that's not going to happen. It hasn't rained in three and a half years. If God wanted it to rain, God wouldn't need me to do anything about it. God can just bring the rain. But that's not what God wants. God wants Elijah to go to the people, to go to Ahab. If we think about this, that's incredibly consistent, isn't it? Moses and Pharaoh, Jesus and Pilate, John and Herod. God calls us to hard things seemingly to us irrationally. But it's that rational thinking that gets us into trouble. Oftentimes, we will not be obedient to God's commands to us because we have reasoned ourselves into thinking he doesn't need me. He can do it without me. God is not dependent on me. And listen, all of those things are 100% true and also not how God operates. Our God is an inviting God, inviting you and I into the process of things. He does not need us to do because we have no ultimate power to create change. And yet God insists upon inviting us to go out and do. If God ordains the ends, then guess what? He gets to ordain the means by which we get there. We have to stop dictating to God the means by which he will do the things he wants to do. Yes, he has power and authority to do them. Yes, he doesn't need you. And yes, he wants you to do it anyway. And this is where we pick up our text this morning. I want to view our time in this passage as if we were discovering the anatomy of a mountain, so to speak. So to tag our time, to title our time in this passage, I'll say it this way. Two sides to a mountain. And I have three points for us. The side where trouble comes. The side of impossibility. And the promise at the peak. 
the side where trouble comes, the side of impossibility, and the promise at the peak. I hope that we see in this text that whether you are a Christian in this room or not, the events atop Mount Carmel serve as a reminder to us that idolatry resides in our hearts. This story confronts us with two choices, commit to God or commit to the ways of the world. But either way, you will meet at the peak a promise fulfilled. You can choose what side of the mountain you'll climb, but you will climb it though. There is no staying at the base. There is no choosing not to climb at all. Your life is moving in a forward direction. The question is, which side of the mountain are you climbing? Will you get to the top and meet a promise fulfilled of judgment or the promise of justice satisfied for your joy? So with all that being said, if you are able, could you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then after we read, I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear what thus saith the Lord. We have a good bit of reading ahead of us. I just want to say that. First Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 17. God's word reads like this. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and follow the Baals. Now, therefore, send. And gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, O answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made, 
And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob. To whom, the Lord of the, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And the stones, and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seals of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water. And pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consume the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, God, it is true what we have just read. Father, we did not read a fairy tale, a parable. What we have read is an actual account in history. Father Israel and the prophets of Baal had to go to a mountain to come feel and witness your presence. But the truth is that you're here in this room right now with us. You, O oh Lord, are here in this place. God who can, main, who can make fire rain down from heaven. Attune our hearts in this moment to be here with you. In this text, in this word, and let it wash over us anew. Father, would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? Would you gift the congregation 
with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I love a good showdown in movies, you know what I'm saying? I like, I love when a movie builds up, makes you as the viewer want nothing more than the fruit of two opposing sides ready for war. Go at it. I want it on my eyeballs. I love it. Gets me excited. And no genre, I think, does it better at, at like creating this tension, maybe recently, than Westerns. I love the modern Western. Uh, I love really the, the reimagining, the 2016 reimagining of that old 1960 film, The Magnificent Seven. You seen that movie? It's not for kids. For you movie historians, sorry, sidebar, for you movie historians, the original 1960 film, Magnificent Seven, is a complete ripoff of a 1958 movie from Japan called The Seven Samurai, but I digress. What I love about the newer, flashier version is not just Denzel Washington, because I'll watch anything with Denzel Washington in it, but it's the buildup. You have two opposing sides, the mysteriously legendary sheriff and his unlikely team of heroes who represent justice, and you have the evil industrialist and his expensive army of mercenaries who represent greed and the exaltation of self by any means, they clash. The tagline of the movie is justice has a number. And the end of the movie is an action-packed showdown with the undercurrent of the moment asking one question, who is worthy to deliver Justice. When we look at the events of 1 Kings 18, we read something similar. A showdown that has been building up for two chapters now. And this showdown is between the last prophet of God and the 450 prophets of Baal. And there is an undercurrent moving underneath the events of what we just read. And it is this. God in Christ brings justice to every human heart. Allow me to make my case. God tells Elijah in chapter 17, go to Ahab. And Ahab greets Elijah in a way that we should note. He says to Elijah, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Or better understood, is that you, the person who has brought all this trouble Upon me and my people. Ahab greets Elijah with an accusation. He shifts the blame for Israel's trouble from himself to Elijah. Ahab doesn't want to accept responsibility. He is blind to his own idolatry. His own law breaking. Deuteronomy 28 declares, God declares that if Israel were to take up another idol, that God would bring a famine. Ahab knows this, but he disregarded God's word and is experiencing God's judgment for it. Three years of judgment and his heart has just become harder. In those three years, he has allowed his wife 
to hunt and kill every prophet of God she could get her hands on. And now on this day, Ahab meets with Elijah not to kill him, but to condemn him. Oh, but therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Elijah tells Ahab, I'm not the one who brought this trouble. You did. In other words, you're the one that has sinned. You have both abandoned God's commands and embraced another God. Family, what a danger it is to be so deceived of your sin as Ahab was. Ahab not only takes no responsibility, what's worse, he projects the blame onto Elijah, whom God sent to Ahab as a grace to him. Elijah is going to Ahab. In other words, God is going to Ahab, reaching out, pleading with Ahab once more to repent. Family, sometimes the person you don't want to check you, God will bring to check you. When you are deep, deep in your sin, when you are at the point where your heart is so hard that you cannot see grace lavished upon you, trouble is not on the way, trouble is already here. Verse 19, Elijah says, get all your prophets from Baal, from Asherah. You know what? Gather the whole city and meet me atop Mount Carmel. And we're going to find out who truly is God. Elijah is saying, we're going to make an event. We're going to make a spectacle of this. Every eye must see what's about to happen. And the location is interesting. Throughout history, this place, this chain of mountains was recognized through other civilizations too as a place of worship for many different gods. It was a beautiful mountain range made of limestone and flint. It's filled with caves at every turn. Prior to being a place where Baal was worshipped, there was actually an altar for Yahweh there. But other nations throughout history, as I said, acknowledge this place. The Egyptians, we have historical documents of the Egyptians calling this very place a sanctuary. We have documents of the Assyrians calling this place Baal's promontory. In other words, Elijah is saying to Ahab, let's go to the place where you expect your God to show up. We're not going to do this. Where Yahweh would come, where you think Yahweh would come. We, we're going to do this where you think Baal's going to show up. Everyone gathers. And, and this is where the main point of the text comes out. The main point of the story is right here. Everything else is supplementary. This is truly why this event was recorded in history in the Bible. Elijah tells the people of Israel how long. Once everybody is there. Elijah says, how long, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? He says, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. 
And the people didn't answer him a word. Pin drop silence was met when a call to take a stand was made. Family, we have on that hill three kinds of persons. First, we have God's single man, Elijah. We have, on the other hand, the decided servants of the evil one, the 450 prophets of Baal. But the vast mass on that mountain, on that day in history, was a third kind of person. Those who had not determined whether to fully worship the Lord, the God of their fathers, or Baal, the God of Jezebel. So they lived traditionally in a way that gave them a natural fear of Jehovah. But their king entertained their tangible curiosities by worshiping Baal. So they feared God, but they bowed to Baal. It's this group of people to whom Elijah speaks to. And this person exists today. And family, the challenge for you and I this morning as we read this text is to go, is this person me? It's the person who says, I know God exists, but I'm going to live my own way. The person who says, I know God exists, but I'm going to live for the money or the American dream of owning a home and two and a half kids and a dog and a van outside and all of the things that make me successful. It's the person who comes to church on Sunday, sings the songs, opens the Bible, but goes home a Sunday night through Saturday evening living for themselves, mistreating their bodies with the worship of food, mistreating their days with the worship of self and laziness, Worshiping the flesh desires with porn and lust. I could go on and on and on. They have a traditional religiosity with God that has not come down into a transformational reality. And this has made them, as Elijah says, lame. They are crippled by this dichotomy. Family, hear me. If you attempt to get your joy your value, your purpose from anything other than God, you will end up lame. Be careful not to embrace uncertainty as a virtue. We, God's people, express our faith by living in this world with confidence. We live, as the psalmist say, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my mountain where I seek refuge. We move in every season of life in full confidence that we have a God who delivers all our needs. You don't have to say amen for it to be true, but it's true. That's one side of the mountain. It leads to a tragic waste of your life because you cannot live in the radically obedient, unlimited receiving joy, lovingly reciprocated life God is inviting you to live in. It does not matter if you fear God but bow to idols. They can't show up for you like he can. They cannot deliver to you the very thing in which you need justice, atonement, acceptance, and love. See, that, that's another of Israel's problems. Their embrace of Baal came in response to what they thought their needs were. 
Oh, church, learn this. It's easy, so easy to misdiagnose what the human heart actually needs. They described human flourishing strictly through the lens of physical, tangible prosperity. They wanted rain, so they embraced the rain God. They wanted prosperity, a strong family name, so they embraced the God of fertility. But Elijah is about to prove they, they got it all wrong. Look at what happens in verse 23. Elijah breaks their silence and says, you know what, guys? We here on his mountain. I'm outnumbered. 450 to one. We're going to have a showdown with those numbers. A showdown of sacrifice. I'm going to give you all the advantages. You go get two bulls and you can pick your bull first. Cut your bull into pieces and lay it on the wood to be sacrificed, but don't put no fire to it. I'm going to do the same thing. And then you call your God to bring down fire and consume the sacrifice. And I will do the same. And whoever God uh, responds with fire proves they're real. But notice this family, every detail of this showdown, every rule of engagement puts Baal at his strength. It's Baal's mountain. His altar standing. Yahweh's is crumbled. It's 450 prophets to one. His people get to choose the bulls and they get to choose the better bull. And they get to go first. Elijah, he's got to rebuild the Lord's altar. I mean, he's, he's at odds. He's against the odds at every place. And so Baal's prophets go first in very dramatic fashion. They begin to beg their God to send down the fire. Would might the God of storms send a lightning bolt to light the altar on fire? No. Verse 26 says, there was no voice. Nobody answered. Bell worshipers began to panic began to limp around the altar they made, circling and chanting. But the only thing burning on that mountain was calories. You can almost see the next part vividly. Elijah's looking at them, looking at this raggedy altar, looking at them, and he's laughing, right? Probably laughing. He begins to throw some holy sarcasm at the false prophets, which I just want to say proves family that there's place in our lives for sarcasm. And I want to thank God for that. Somebody said, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. That's probably the only amen I'm going to get from you, but I appreciate it. It reminded me this word's for me. Elijah says, hey, what's up with that bell? Yell louder. He probably out hunting. My favorite one is, he probably on the toilet. <laughs> he probably sleeping. Somebody should go wake him up. But what Elijah does here is actually pretty clever. He's pointing out two things. 
The first is the vanity of their God. Tony Morita says it this way. He says, in pagan mythology, gods actually performed many human activities. So Elijah was actually referring to the common beliefs that some people believed Baal made journeys and he went to sleep and performed other human activities, including dying. One ancient document we actually have in history says that his sister could not find him one day because he had gone hunting. So the prophetic sarcasm, Tony says, is meant to expose the uselessness of Baal worship. Elijah, the second thing he's trying to do is he wants to set up the point that our God always inclines his ears to his people. That our God does not sleep. He does not slumber. Our God never goes on vacation. He doesn't use the restroom. Our God is always present and he is never away. But the Baal prophets, they, they hear Elijah throwing these words. They, they double down. They start to cut themselves with swords and lances. The Bible says it's so bad that blood gushed over them and they kept going until the evening. Look at the measures they will go to to get the attention of their God. Look how far they will take it to the point of harming themselves. Family, don't judge them too harshly because we do this figuratively and spiritually. We do this with our idols too. We, we, we operate in self-mutilation when we worship our flesh, when we create idols of our children, our work, our money, our sports, our investments. When we make an idol out of anything that is not God, we find ourselves in a performance-based religion that will demand from us activity to merit favor. Oh, the lengths you'll go to make your children like you when they already love you. These prophets cut themselves till blood poured out. Oh, but for God's children, blood has already been spilled and it's not our own. Oh, no, it's the blood of our Savior. His blood and his activity alone have given us access to the ear of the Father. He always listens by Christ's work, not our own. We're able to commune with God and be free from the condemnation that seeks to put us down. And because that's true, we sing and we shout and we dance, not to gain God's attention, but to celebrate his beauty in saving sinners, making them whole and living inside of them. Serving our idols is an empty religion family. It is like the psalmist says, they have no mouths to speak. They have no ears to hear. They have no breath in their lungs. But there is another side of the mountain. If the one side is where trouble comes and look what that demands of us. Surely the other side of the mountain must be easier. No, it's not. The other side of the mountain is actually impossible. Let me make my case. Elijah calls the people's attention away from the prophets of Baal. It's evening now. They've been at it all day. Elijah says, everybody come here. And the crowd comes to him. And as they circle 
around him, Elijah begins to rebuild the altar. The altar is a physical representation of Israel's spiritual life. He builds the altar properly with 12 stones, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, reminding Israel the faith of their forefathers. When he gets on his hands and knees and he rebuilds the altar and he puts 12 stones down there, what he is doing is he is reminding them of the faith they once had, not something new. He's calling them to repentance in just how he's building the altar. Elijah is reminding them of an old thing. It's like finding an old photo album. There's no new experience in there for you. You've experienced everything in that photo album already. And what the photo album does is it just reminds you of the past and how easily we, 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 we transport ourselves into that, those moments when we glance upon those photos. Don't you feel yesterday's feelings today? That's what Elijah's doing here. Since the beginning God has been against the odds. Baal's Mountain, 450 prophets, already built altar. They picked the bulls. They picked the better bull of the two. And now Elijah shocks everybody again. He says, go fill four jars with water and pour them on everything three times. He tells them, pour it on the bull, pour it on the wood, pour it on the stones, Pour it on the altar. Everything. Cover it in water. They pour so much water that Elijah built a trench around the altar and the trench filled up. Listen, I'm not a camper. I'm not outdoorsy in any way. But I do know you ain't getting no fire with wet stuff like that. <laughs> that just feels like math to me, right? Like... Science, there you go. Look at me. Homeschool my kids. <laughs> ah, they're good, I promise. But how, how, how do you make, how, how do you burn wet things? Dr not wet, drenched. The people must be bewildered. They're looking at Elijah like, brother, what is you doing? But let me just say this, family. God loves to be at a disadvantage. Oh, yeah. God loves to be at a disadvantage. There is no tragedy that he can't use for his triumph. He always wins. No? No, can I tell you what my Bible says? No, Joseph was betrayed by his family. He was made a slave. He was unjustly thrown in prison and by God's favor became the ruler of Egypt. Gideon had 30,000 men and God sent them all away but 300 and they defeated a troop of 120,000. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace against all odds. They should have died but they came out unscathed. Daniel was sentenced to death. 
by being put in a lion's den, filled with hungry lions who ain't eaten in days. And he came out the lion's friend, a scrawny shepherd boy with nothing but a sling and some stones, went to war with a gigantic mighty warrior, and he cut off old boy's head. And there's Jesus, who was beaten and crushed and downtrodden before he was even laid on the wooden cross. And on Golgotha's hill, he was nailed and hung and pierced, and still he took your sin and mine, and he died only to be raised three days later in his humanity. And to this day, he is the sin snatcher and the death defeater. What I'm trying to tell you, church, is that when I read my Bible, my Bible says God loves impossible odds. Verse 36, Elijah prays a simple prayer. God, come down. That's basically what he says, right? God, titles, titles, me, titles, titles, come down. And that fire he requested fell down from heaven. It didn't just fall, though. It consumed the bull. It consumed the wood, the stones, even the dust on the ground. It burned so hot that the water that filled the trench evaporated. <laughs> Everything was consumed by the fire that fell from the sky. Did you, did you catch it, though? Did, let, me, let me help you out. At the beginning of the text, it says Israel embraced Baal, the god of storms. The text also says that Israel was in a drought. The text also says that God told Elijah, when you talk to Ahab, I will bring the rain. Then the text says that when Elijah prayed, the fire of the Lord fell down. Do you know what that fire, uh, that word fire means in Hebrew? Lightning. In other words, God is showing Israel Baal is not the God of storms and rain. He is. He controls it all. He brings the drought. And he brings the rain. He is the Lord God of Israel, sovereign over all creation. Family, you must know that God will always take the brokenness of this world and repackage it for his glory to be shown rightly. But that's not all God is concerned with in this display of sovereign power. Take note the fact that everything on the altar was consumed. This is another message to Israel. He's not just sovereign over creation. He's sovereign in his election. In other words, he reminds Israel that he is ruler over every heart. The text says in verse 39, when Israel saw the lightning and the fire, they fell on their faces and repented. However, it does not say that the prophets of Baal repented. This display of sovereign power did nothing to them. God shows up on that mountaintop and there are two responses to him. Israel who repents and the prophets who remain. I don't know if you caught it yet. See, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a system created by God to atone for their sins. When you sin against God, blood must be given to atone you. Death of an innocent for life. Something clean and pure must take on the burden of God's judgment for your uncleanliness so that you can be washed clean on Mount Carmel. There was a bull. Your idols 
cannot forgive you. Your false gods cannot make you clean. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So that means that God is literally dead serious about sin. And so the, the, the two responses are actually met with the same outcome, death for life, justice and judgment. The first question that must be answered is this. Why did the fire consume the bull and not Israel? Haven't you wondered that? One bull for a whole nation's sin? Surely that's not enough. Doesn't Israel deserve punishment for forsaking God? Yes. And the fire consuming the bull was a grace to everyone on that mountain. Let me, let, let, me, let, me, let me keep building this out for you. Let's look at the New Testament. In Luke 9, Jesus and the disciples, they're, they're going somewhere. And they're met with hostility. The people of Israel are, 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 are angry. They're hostile towards Jesus and his disciples. The Bible says they rejected him. There's a parallel to Israel in 1 Kings, right? You see it already? Okay. James and John ask a similar question to Jesus that we're asking right now. And they're referring to this moment when they ask it. They ask Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them like in the days of Elijah? And Jesus rebukes them. Why? Because the wrath of God for sin will be poured out on him. It will be poured out not, not on a bull, but on Christ. Jesus is the wrath of God satisfied for our sin. The bull on Mount Carmel wasn't enough for Israel's sin. It's not even enough for your sins and mine, but that bull was a grace to Israel. It was a grace because it reminded them that atop another peak, a much smaller mountain, the promise of God's justice will be satisfied. Atop that mountain, the full wrath of God would not consume a bull in place for his people, but his perfect, innocent son. The showdown on Mark Carmel then reminds us that Jesus is the justice of God satisfied on our behalf for our idolatry. See, Israel met Jesus atop that mountain against impossible odds, against every logical conclusion they could come up with. There was actually no way logically fire should show up on that altar and burn everything the way it did. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. What else is impossible is that your sin and mine could be forgiven because of the blood of somebody else. Oh, you're not with me. It's Paul who says, who would die for another man, let alone a stranger? Not even a good person would. The greatest humans here would think twice before giving their life for somebody else when it was their fault. Oh, but not our Jesus. Our Jesus took on the full justice of God for us and he did it willingly. He took your sin and put him and put it on himself and he took up and he took it up on that cross in your place and mine so that the wrath of God could never be over us but love and mercy of God would follow us all of our days. Family today, climb the impossible side of the mountain, the side that doesn't make any sense. Repent as Israel repented and be lame no more. Let 
today mark the day you finally and fully surrender to the Lord. Let today be the day you turned away from your idols and surrendered to God. Let today be the day you committed to living under the covenant promise of God. And may you find that judgment passed you over so that no one could condemn you anymore. Stand with me and worship.